Well, we are on week two of a three-part mini-series that we're doing called Mission Mindset. In this series, we're going through three missionary sermons preached by the great Apostle Paul, who was arguably the greatest missionary, the greatest evangelist, other than Jesus himself in the history of the church. This week, we find ourselves in Acts 17, as Paul preaches in Athens, specifically at the Areopagus, atop of Mars Hill. This is God's Word, Acts chapter 17. We'll be reading verses 16 through 34. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by humans, human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. 
among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. This is God's word. Let's go to him in prayer. O Lord our God, we seek your guidance as we study your word. We want to know you. We want to be known by you. We want to make you known to our friends, to our family members, to all those that we encounter. We pray, Lord God, that you would accomplish this. Give us understanding. Give us love, a heart for the lost. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Lately, I've been reading a lot about the rise of the nuns. It almost sounds like a bad zombie movie, doesn't it? The rise of the nuns. Well, what are the nuns and why are they rising? The nuns are people who don't belong to any organized religious group. When asked to describe their religious views, who or what they affiliate with, these are the people who check the box marked none. N-O-N-E none, not N-U-N none. The N-U-N nuns presumably check the box marked Roman Catholic, but I digress. What do the nuns believe about God? Well, most of them, you might be surprised to know, do in fact believe in God. There are some atheist nuns, but the vast majority of them worship what the Athenians might know as the unknown God. In other words, the God of the nuns exists, he's just a little bit hard to pin down. He's a fairly open-minded deity. He wants you to be happy. He wants you to be nice to people. He doesn't really judge people, unless, of course, you said something mildly offensive on social media 13 years ago, in which case you are eternally condemned. But other than that, he's a lot like Morgan Freeman. Old, wise, nice speaking voice. This is the God of the nuns. The question is, is the God of the nuns the real God? Who is the real God? Can we know the true and living God? According to the Apostle Paul, we can. We can know the true and living God. Verse 27, he is actually not far from each of us. And not only can we know God... God wants us to know him, and he wants us to make him known. So how do we make God known? Do we preach? Do we pray? Do we hand out copies of the Bible? Do we simply live a good and loving life, a life of service to our friends and neighbors, hoping that other people will see the face of Jesus as we love and as we serve? In an effort to answer some of these questions, we travel to Mars Hill, to the Areopagus, where the Apostle Paul preached one of the most famous sermons in the New Testament. Some have described this as the gospel for philosophers, the gospel for artists and intellectuals, the gospels for the cultural elite, and I think that there's certainly some truth in that. But I like to think of this as the gospel for seekers. I like to think of this as the gospel for nuns. 
I'd like to think of this as the gospel for anyone who has ever wondered, who am I? What, where am I going? Who is God? What does God want? Can we know? How do we know? If you're taking notes this morning, I want us to ask three big questions about how Paul made the knowable God known to the people of Athens. Our first big question is, where did Paul go? The second big question is, why did Paul go? And the third big question is, what did Paul say? So where did Paul go? Why did he go there? And what did he say? How did Paul make the knowable God known to the people of Athens? Are you ready? Let's take a closer look. We begin with our first big question, which is, where did Paul go? After leaving his friends, uh, Silas and Timothy, in the city of Berea, Paul traveled on to the city of Athens, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Athens was one of the most important cities in the Roman Empire. Athens was the birthplace of democracy. All of the greatest philosophers came from Athens, people like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. Some of the great leaders of, of medicine came from the city of Athens. We think of Hippocrates, who had the Hippocratic Oath. Some of the greatest artists of the ancient world were from Athens. We think of Aeschylus, who was the father of the ancient Greek dramas. Athens was a city like New York City, Los Angeles, Oxford, Cambridge, and Bruton, Alabama, all rolled into one. All of the greatest people came from the city of Athens. So what's the lesson here? I think that God is telling us that if we want to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have to reach cities like Athens. We have to reach cities like New York and Los Angeles and London and Paris and Tokyo and Beijing and Mumbai and Mexico City, Oxford and Cambridge. As Christians, we must engage which, with the cultural and artistic and intellectual capitals of the world. Is that hard? It is. Was it hard for Paul? Absolutely. Is it necessary? I believe that it is. But here's the good news. God can and does, in spite of all the difficulties of reaching these major, major metropolitan cities, these cultural hubs, God can and often does transform great cities. We know this because God did transform the greatest empire in the history of the world, arguably the Roman Empire. It took a long time, roughly 300 years, but eventually there were so many people who became Christians in the Roman Empire that the great emperor Constantine made Christian converted to Christianity. His mother was a Christian. 
and made Christianity a religion that had favored status, not quite the official religion, but the favored religion of the Roman Empire. If you're interested in how, how it happened, Rodney Stark has written a great book about this called The Triumph of Christianity, highly recommended. But the point is, God can transform the great cities of the world. So, where did Paul go once he arrived in Athens? Verse 17. So Paul reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with everyone who happened to be there. First, Paul went to the synagogue where he preached the gospel to people who were very familiar with the Bible. These were conservative people, religious people, people who had a familiarity with God's word. But then he didn't stop there. He went to the marketplace to reason with people who had little to no familiarity with the Bible at all. He reasoned with the Epicureans who had kind of a YOLO philosophy of life. The Epicureans were li say, live for today, live for the pleasures of this world. This is all there is. We must uh, wring all the pleasure out of this life. He also reasoned with the Stoics who had more of a stiff upper lip uh, approach to life. These are people who said that we become great by embracing the suffering. If you want to think about the Epicureans, think about Drake in a toga. If you want to think about the Stoics, think about Nick Saban in a, in a toga. See, these are the, the conservatives, the liberals, the, hey, let it all hang loose, the people who said, hey, we're very rigid, defined. Paul went and he preached the gospel to all these people. Paul met all kinds of interesting, unbelieving people in the marketplace. And he told them all about Jesus. Why? Because the gospel isn't just for church-going people. The gospel is for all people. Whether you're a religious person, somebody who goes to the synagogue, or a, a pagan person in the marketplace, we all need Jesus. We all need the gospel. We all need the gospel to confront us and challenge us, and conform us, and ultimately to heal us. Our calling is, as Christians is to take the gospel from our comfortable church buildings out into the streets, into the marketplace. In Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 20, we read, Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gate, she speaks. The gospel has the power to change your life as an individual. If you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are sinners who are saved by God's grace, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Spirit will come into your life and your life will be transformed on a personal, individual level. But the gospel does so much more than that. The gospel that transforms individuals also has the power to change the world. 
the gospel can change cities. The gospel can change families. The gospel can change schools. I've seen it. The gospel can change prisons. I've seen it. There is no limit to the power of Jesus. There is no limit to the power of the gospel. So speak up. Speak up. Now, you don't have to be obnoxious about it. Paul wasn't obnoxious about it. But raise your voice in the marketplace. Raise your voice in the streets. The gospel is beautiful. God is glorious. Jesus is amazing. There's, this world is not all that there is. There is a future. There is hope because of Jesus. There's resurrection where did Paul go? He went to Athens. He went to the synagogues. He went to the marketplace. So should we. The whole earth is our mission field. We, we are called to make God known. Second big question, why did Paul go there? Paul went to, the, went to Athens and to the synagogues and to the marketplace and eventually to the Areopagus, this place called Mars Hill, because he hated the idols and he loved the people. In fact, I think you could go so far as to say that he hated the idols because he loved the people. Verse 16, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was filled with idols. So he reasoned in the, in the synagogues with the Jews and devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So first, Paul was provoked, and this provocation, this troubling in his spirit, led Paul to reason. So what does that mean? What does it mean when we say that Paul reasoned with people in the synagogues, that he reasoned with people in the marketplace, that he reasoned with people who didn't know God? Well, one of my old pastors, Pastor Tim Keller, makes a very helpful observation here. He points out that the word that we translate reason or reasoned doesn't mean sort of a general type of reasoning, uh, sort of an intellectual arguing or back and forth dialogue. It refers specifically to Socratic reasoning. It refers to the Socratic method of dialogue and discussion. Now, some of you, like me, maybe you were in Philosophy 101 class a long, long time ago, and so you need a little bit of a refresher. So what is the Socratic method? Here's what it is. With the Socratic method, the goal isn't simply to proclaim, nor is the goal simply to dialogue, sort of back and forth. Paul didn't go there and say, hey, all you pagans, all you idolaters, you're going to hell. Uh, good luck with that. I'm out of here. That's declaring. He also didn't dialogue with them in the sense this, of saying, hey, you guys worship all these idols, and uh, you think they're good, and so I think they're bad. Why don't you tell me why they're, you think they're bad, and I'll tell you or why, why they're good and why they're bad, and you kind of have this back-and-forth dialogue. That's not what it is. Socratic method means you use your imagination to enter into the worldview of another person so that you can critique that worldview on its own terms. 
It's about listening to people and caring about people so much so that you can learn to think like them, not to adopt their worldview, but to critique their worldview as a friend and not an enemy. That's how Paul entered into the lives of these people. Socratic reasoning says, I see all these statues. I see that you're very religious. Tell me about that one. Tell me about this statue to the unknown God. Why would you build that? Is it possible that all of these other gods that you're worshiping are in some ways not answering all the deepest questions about who is God and what does he want and why am I here? What if you could know this unknown God? Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't it be great if you could have a, a, a personal relationship with the great unknown God who stands above and beyond all of these false gods that you're worshiping? See, do you see the difference? He's not declaring, you're wrong, repent you pagans. He's not dialoguing, hey, maybe we're both right. You know, let's just hear everybody's point of view. He's reasoning, listening to the Stoics, listening to the Epicureans, learning what they believe so that he can show them how much greater the God of the Scripture is, how much more beautiful and profound and poignant the gospel of Jesus Christ is. Now, that's hard. It's a lot easier to just proclaim. It's a lot easier to not have an opinion at all. Hey, maybe, maybe we're both right. It's especially difficult when the people that you're trying to reason with are ridiculing you while you're reasoning with them. That happened to the Apostle Paul. They said, hey, what does this babbler have to say? That's not nice. Is it? I would feel very bad if someone in this church afterwards said, hey, what were you babbling about today? I kind of lost track, you know, somewhere in the middle. You know, you had 37 points and then some subpoints, and so oh, you're just babbling on. That would hurt your feelings, right? Our feelings will get hurt if we engage this way. Our feelings will get hurt if we enter in to the brokenness and pain and confusion and heartache of the world. It's much easier to keep the world, unbelieving world, at arm's distance, at arm's length, saying, hey, I don't really want to know you. I don't really want to get involved. But that's what Jesus did for us. Amen? Why did Jesus do it? Why did Paul do it? The answer is love. You endure the insults because of love. You confront the idols because of love. You reason because of love. Hate the idols. Love the people. Third big question. What did Paul say? Verse 18. Others says he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. That's Paul's general message. The general message that he preached in the synagogues, in the marketplace, was Jesus and the resurrection. That's a two-word summary of everything that he said. Every time he would go to the synagogues, every time he would go to the marketplace, he was like a jeweler examining the same gospel diamond from different angles as he applied it and thought about how it reached the people 
that were there. Every time Paul spoke, he told them, we are all sinners in need of God's grace. No matter who you are, you could be a Jew, you could be a Gentile, you could be a Stoic, you could be an Epicurean, you could be a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ. We are all sinners who need God's grace. And God has given us the grace that we so desperately need in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel is that God the Father sent God the Son, Jesus Christ, to the cross in our place because of Jesus, because of his death, we are reconciled to God. That means no more guilt. That means no more shame. That means no more condemnation, no more curse. And in order to confirm that Jesus is who he said that he was, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, one with God, the revealer of God, in order to prove that this was actually true and that his sacrifice actually effectuated the thing that it was designed to effectuate, Jesus rose from the dead, which is God's message to everyone in the world, including us, including the ancient Athenians, including people who are in China and South America and Asia, everywhere in the world, that Jesus is the Son of God, that the King is not dead, that he is alive, that he is seated on the right hand of God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. Because of Jesus, death does not get the last word. Because of Jesus, disease does not get the last word. Because of Jesus, disaster does not get the last word. Because of Jesus, grace gets the last word. And life gets the last word. And joy gets the last word. And hope gets the last word. And peace gets the last word. Isn't that good news? That is great news. Jesus and the resurrection, that is the general message that Paul would preach day after day after day in the synagogues, in the marketplaces, among anyone who would listen. Now, what about this specific message that Paul preached to the people on Mars Hill? What did he say to them, these uh, people who called him to give an, have an audience with him to preach the gospel, what did he say? Now, his first point is very interesting. He says, first of all, I see that you are very religious people. Now, why would he say that? Is he kind of trying to make a connection with them? Is this a, a compliment? Is he flattering them? I don't think it's a compliment. I think it's true but I don't think it's a, meant to be complimentary at all. They had statues of false gods all over the place. Mars Hill, the place where they were, was named after the Roman god Mars, who was the god of war, also known as Ares, which is why they called it the Areopagus. These people worshipped hundreds and hundreds of false gods. So do we. We worship hundreds and hundreds of false gods. In fact, I think that if Jesus were to come here today and preach a sermon to us, he may begin by saying, men and women and children of Pensacola, 
I see that you are very religious. And I think you would say that, not because of all the church buildings we have in the city, but because of all the idols in our heart. Now, why, what do I mean? Why do I say that? Here's a helpful definition of idolatry to help think through this from Tony Morita. He writes this, great definition. He says, an idol is anything to which we turn when we need something that only Jesus can provide. Let me read it again. An idol is anything to which we turn when we need something that only Jesus can provide. So you think about your own life. You think, well, I need to be loved. I need to be appreciated. I need to be respected. I want excitement. I want adventure. I want my life to count. I want to leave my mark in this world. I want to leave a legacy that outlives me. Where do I go? Where do I get that? Well, I'll get married. Then all my problems will be solved, right? All the married people are laughing. My wife will give me the respect that I so desperately need, sometimes. My husband will give me the love that I want at the bottom of my heart, sometimes he will. My children will love me, my children will respect me. Yeah, that is a thing that happens sometimes. Who will satisfy the deepest longings of our heart? And Paul's answer, the scripture's answer, Jesus' answer is only him, only Jesus. If we settle for anything less, then we are worshiping an idol. We are all religious people. We're all looking for answers to our deepest questions. We're all searching for something or someone to give us what only Jesus can give. Our ultimate problem, the problem underneath all of our problems, according to the great theologian Martin Luther and the not-so-great theologian me, is idolatry. As the great theologian John Calvin said, our hearts are idol factories. We're constantly churning out false gods, false sources of hope, false sources of joy. And so Paul looks at us and says, men and women of Pensacola, I see that you are very religious people. Now, Paul's second point is this. If you ditch the idols, if you get rid of the idols, you can know the true and living God. If you get rid of the false gods, you can know the real God. And then, throughout the rest of the sermon, he begins to paint a picture of who that God is. He says, our God is great. Our God is the creator of the universe, the heavens, the earth, the seas, and all that is in them. From the largest animal to the tiniest tiniest microscopic organism, our God is the creator of all things. And not only is our God the creator, our God is the sustainer. He upholds the world by the word of his power. Every moment of every day, he's got the whole world in his hands. In him, we live and move and have our being. 
Our God is sovereign. He is the God not only of one nation, the nation of Israel, He is the God of all nations. He is the God of the Romans, the Athenians, the Ephesians, the Philippians, every people group that is or was, the Lord our God is sovereign over all. But that's not all. Not only is our God great, our God is gracious. He's not a God who stands far off, hurling down lightning bolts from the top of Mount Olympus. Our God is near. We are his offspring. In him we live and move and have our being. He wants us to know him. He wants us to find him. He wants us to have a relationship with him. Someday he's coming back and all will see as the Lord our God will send Jesus to judge the heavens and the earth. Someday, Paul tells the Athenians and us, it will be too late to receive Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. That's the bad news. Time is not endless. Our universe is not eternal in the sense of it will go on like this forever and ever. We are headed toward a final act, a final culminating move in which Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead. The good news is right now, it's not too late. Right now, today, is the only moment that we have promised to us. And so I urge you to repent and believe the gospel. To stop worshiping the unknown God, the God of your imagination, the God who is ill-defined and nebulous, and to come and worship the true and living God, the God who loves you so much that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for you. There is no God like our God. Dionysius believed the message. He became a Christian. Damaris came to Jesus. She was saved. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, come to Jesus and you will join the international family of God. The family from all nations. The family that belongs to him. That's how the gospel works. Like Paul, Jesus sees our idols, our idolatry. Like, Je like Paul, Jesus loves us in spite of our idolatry. Like Paul, Jesus was insulted and mocked and belittled. Unlike Paul, Jesus was nailed to the Roman cross. Like Paul, Jesus endured it all so that we could know the true and living God. God wants us to know how great he is. God wants us to know how gracious he is. That's the God we know. That's the God we love. That's the God we worship. Let's go to him in prayer. Oh Lord our God, we thank you that you have made yourself known in the person of Jesus Christ, our great God and King. 
if there's anyone listening within the sound of my voice who does not yet know you, I pray that you would reveal yourself to them as the great and gracious God, the God who will come back one day to judge the heavens and earth, the God who has already made provision for his people by laying his wrath upon his son, Jesus Christ, so that we might receive grace and mercy and peace. Hear our prayer, Lord God. Forgive our sins. Empower us to make you known. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This time in our worship service, we're going to give back a portion of what God has given us in the form of our tithes and offerings. This is something that we do as Christian people, specifically Christian people who are members or regular attenders of this local church so that we can do the work of ministry in this community. And so if that's you, if you're a member or regular attender, we encourage you to give as God moves in your heart to give. For the Lord loves and blesses cheerful givers. Let's do that now.
Brothers and sisters, would you stand with me and let's proclaim what it is that we believe.
now the benediction God's good word for you his people and now may the Lord bless you and keep you may the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace now and in the life to come amen let us go forth and serve the world in honor of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ thanks be to God amen